You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 29th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Energy transition is disrupting a lot of industries in different ways and to different degrees, but perhaps the fastest and most far-reaching disruption is happening in the transportation sector. Many of us are now thoroughly accustomed to transportation modes that didn't even exist a decade ago, like ride-sharing and car-sharing services, e-bikes and e-scooters, semi-autonomous vehicles, hoverboards, one-wheels, three-wheels, rickshaws, a whole host of new mobility appliances. And of course, the mobility revolution is really just getting started. Those who take a far-sighted view of mobility say that fully autonomous vehicles could be with us in just a few years and see a whole new mobility paradigm dawning, one in which truckers don't exist because transport trucks will be self-driving and where few even own a car anymore because we'll all be zipping around in electric robo-taxis. But are we really heading into a Jetsons-like future of easy, cheap, clean, and convenient mobility? Or are we rushing headlong into an unforeseen set of social problems? What should elected officials be thinking about as they're confronted with the challenges of regulating all these novel forms of transportation? And what sorts of criteria should they bring to bear in their oversight? What makes mobility truly sustainable? How do we even weigh up all the pros and cons of new mobility modes? Not just the social effects like safety and equity, but the environmental impacts, the total impact on the energy system, and the socioeconomic strategies we bring to our urban development and civic planning activities more generally. Can we hedge our bets against sudden and massive dislocations driven by autonomous vehicles? These are difficult questions requiring expertise in numerous domains, which few people possess, plus a creative approach to research, which is why we're very lucky today to have as our guest Debbie Hopkins, an associate professor in human geography at the University of Oxford. With work spanning sustainable urban development, transport studies, geography, and the environment, Debbie covers all the bases. She's a research affiliate at the Center for Sustainability at the University of Otago, New Zealand, and is associate editor for the Journal of Sustainable Tourism. She has co-edited two books on mobility transitions, which build upon her research interests, including climate change, low-carbon futures, and socio-technical transitions. And at Oxford, she leads research into expectations of automation and freight, everyday experiences of UK truckers, and novel methodologies for researching mobile work. I'm pleased to have her on the show, and I know you will find her views as thought-provoking as I did. Then in the news segment, we'll look at three recent reports indicating that asset managers are becoming quite serious about reducing their exposure to stranded assets and damage from climate change. We'll note a surprising turn of events in the attempt to bail out Montana's coal strip power plant, and we'll celebrate the passage of the coal securitization bill that was the focus of episode 92. But first, our conversation with Debbie Hopkins, recorded April 15th, 2019. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Debbie, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you've done research on a number of topics relevant to energy transition, including demand-side energy solutions and various effects that climate change will have on sectors like tourism. But your main focus is clearly on mobility now and the potential for new electric mobility solutions to play a role in reducing emissions. And more recently, you've done several papers on the potentials and pitfalls of autonomous vehicles. So let's dive right in on the mobility stuff. First of all, how important is electric mobility in all its forms as a way of combating climate change? That's a great question. I think electric mobility is an important part of the picture, certainly an important part of the future. It's a very broad term. It includes everything. So initially, when we talk about electric mobility, what everybody pictures is an electric vehicle, a passenger car. But obviously, it covers a whole wide remit. We can talk about electric two-wheel vehicles, which are very popular in places like China. We can also talk about electricity being used in different ways in the freight sector, particularly in sort of urban goods. But even with the passenger vehicle, there are obviously very different sort of technologies that are coming into electric mobility. And it's actually the point when supply and demand side kind of come together, when they touch one another and start to speak to each other in different ways. So I think it In a short answer, I think it's got a very important role to play in decarbonising the transport system or reducing the carbon intensity of the transport system, but it's by no means guaranteed. And I think that's the key point for me. And so there's a range of issues, things like rebounds. So there's a range of scholarship that, that talks about what rebounds might occur. So that means that people might travel in different ways. So actually by using an electric vehicle, they might shift their travel practices. They might actually end up driving more because maybe the cost of the fuel is less or they see the environmental burden as being lower. And so we've seen some research that suggested that rebounds can be quite intense, particularly when motivations are around environmental sustainability. We also know that electric mobility is only as good as the electricity. So if the electricity is being produced by coal power plants, it sort of defeats the purpose in many ways. Regardless of the source of electricity, it can be very good for air pollution, but in terms of carbon, we're still emitting carbon. So that's a general concern. There's also things around fleet replacement. So some work that I've seen in Japan looked at policies around that incentivized the removal of internal combustion engines and the purchasing of electric vehicles. And the study showed that actually people were getting rid of vehicles before they should. So because they weren't looking at sort of a whole of life emissions, they weren't accounting for, they thought the vehicles would be around for sort of 15 years and people were getting rid of them after five years. So it ended up actually in the short to medium term having higher carbon emissions than might otherwise. So things like that are a concern. And where those vehicles go, so there's been research that's shown that electric vehicles from Norway might end up in sort of lower income countries in Eastern Europe. They might end up in certain African countries. Um, So actually, we end up just offshoring emissions rather than necessarily decarbonising the transport system. But that said, you know, there are a range of very important things that they do because it can be accompanied by other sustainable behaviours. So if you get an electric vehicle, sometimes that can be accompanied by things like solar PV, other kinds of energy practices that become sort of a household level system. And that's really important. That's a really um, important step to decarbonising the transport system and thinking about transport interconnected with other types of practices. And internal combustion engines have pretty much reached their 
optimum efficiency, they're not going to get much more efficient than they are today. So whilst we do see some data that shows that some electric vehicles in terms of a whole of life carbon is about the same as some internal combustion engines, we know electric vehicles are becoming more efficient, whereas internal combustion engines have kind of settled. They're probably not going to get much more efficient. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the ways that electric Mobility is complicated, I think. I think it has a role to play. I don't think it's going to be the answer. And I don't think that many people are suggesting it's going to be the answer. But unfortunately, it has in discourse in some ways kind of fallen into that that basket of being, well, the solution will be electric vehicles. We don't really need to worry too much. We just need to put in the infrastructure. We just need to reduce the price. We just need to stimulate the market and then everything will be okay. And I don't think I subscribe to that kind of idea. Right. Okay. So that is a good segue to my next question, because after surveying a dozen or so of your papers, I really get the impression that you're concerned that new electric mobility solutions will not live up to their potential without strong policy and governance, or worse, that they'll maybe even produce some undesirable outcomes. So why are you concerned about this? What's the evidence that new mobility isn't just another set of technologies that the market will eventually steer in the right directions for socially beneficial results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the question kind of, it makes me laugh in some ways. It's quite amusing and I don't know if it's intentionally amusing <laughs> because the market, very rarely will it be steering technologies in the right direction for socially beneficial results because I imagine many people would argue that's not really the market's place. So there may be particular technologies, particular innovations, which may include technologies, but might not include technologies that might have some kind of socially beneficial goal, but an awful lot don't. And so relying on markets to make those kinds of judgments, I think is quite dangerous. And I think in many ways, that's how we've ended up in the mess with the the sort of system that we have now, where it was decided upon that we would have vehicles. I mean, cars aren't intrinsically bad things. There's nothing about a car that is necessarily problematic, but the way it's been used, the broader system that's locked it in place, that's meant that you actually require a car rather than it just being an optional item, have meant that we've ended up with a transport system that is high carbon, that is inequitable that has a range of negative externalities and so I think that my concerns come from the new innovations which include automation include electrification include a range of different innovations and smart innovations aren't necessarily going to take us down a pathway that we might want and so actually we need to take a step back and say okay what is it that we want and so smart innovations things like mobility as a service and smart cities and smart mobility as part of that they might offer the opportunity to rethink how this transport system works who benefits from the transport system and who even gets to decide what the transport system looks like and so I think that if we can use this point of transition and this kind of period of flux and uncertainty to spend time thinking about that transport system, that might mean that in the future we actually get towns and cities that we all want to live in that are more equitable, more just. And so it's a complicated picture where 
I don't think we can rely on innovations on their own to be solving the answer. So you can't just plug and play a new technology and think that everything's going to change. Um, so we could just replace the internal combustion engine vehicle for the electric vehicle and we end up with the same system but a different fuel. But that's not actually going to be a particularly radical transition that will just be a replacement. We'll have all of the same issues that we currently have. We will still have congestion. We might have slightly less emissions. Over time, we might have more and more lower emissions. We might have lower air pollution, but we'd still have car-dominated transport systems. If this is an opportunity for us to say, well, do we want car-dominated transport systems? And so I think that that's the important part for me is about thinking more broadly than just an innovation, but thinking about socio-technical transitions, thinking about systemic change and how that might occur at this point, what the flux that's happening at the moment allows us to think about and do. All right. Well, what's some of the evidence that you look at when you look at new mobility and go, wait a minute, this is not necessarily going the way we want it to? What are some examples of the kinds of risks that you see in new mobility that need to be addressed with better governance or stronger policy? Mm-hmm. So I guess the undesirable outcomes that we're worried about is more of the same. So I think that we can probably all agree that at present, not everywhere, and this is the key point, is that different towns and cities, different countries have very different transport systems. But on the whole, we know that people that commute by car are less happy than people that commute by foot. Um, There can be a range of reasons for that. But there's data that shows that places that are very car dependent, people tend to be less happy with the place that they live. Um, They tend to be exposed to more air pollution particularly when you link this to things like housing markets where people end up needing to live in satellite towns outside of the cities that they live in. They might be required to sit in congestion. They have all of these parts of their everyday life that are suboptimal. And places perhaps that have lower cost and more freely available public transport infrastructure that might be more walkable, might be more accessible um, for particular people in particular spaces, they tend to be what we consider to be more livable cities and maybe more desirable cities, more desirable places to live. And so I think that for me, the consequences of innovations happening to us rather than in a more planned way is that one, we don't get to make use of the opportunity to be thinking strategically about what it is that we want from our towns and cities so that opportunity becomes lost, but also that we end up with more of the same. So we end up with more cars, we end up with more parts of the system that don't quite fit together, things that don't necessarily link up. Gotcha. And so it's not taking the opportunity to reconsider what we have. And maybe that's the point is that we're at this massive point of change and that it's a very hard time. It is a very difficult time when I talk to policymakers and planners, they say, well, how do you make decisions right now? How do you invest in infrastructure? How do you decide what's going to happen? Because no one really knows. And it is an incredibly tricky time. But rather than allowing it to be led by an innovation or a group of innovations, we could take a step back. And it's not necessarily that it needs to be strong policy. It's that it needs to be a more open conversation about what that might look like and who can decide what that looks like. And it's slightly different than suggesting that it should be sort of some top-down policy that the government should be telling us and deciding, but that it equally can't just be led by innovation. 
Right. Okay. So there's definitely a constellation of concerns here that has to do with urban planning mm-hmm. and with just broader stakeholder engagement around what do we want our communities to look like and how do we want to live. Yeah. All right. I get that. So if we want to see not just automated mobility, but sustainable mobility, what does that mean? Like in what sense is automobility not necessarily sustainable and what makes the best solutions sustainable? Sure. So the term automobility is something that's used quite widely in an academic sense. And it came from a scholar called John Uri, who was a professor at the University of Lancaster. And he was a sociologist and he thought quite a lot about what he called the system of automobility. And his argument was that when we think of our transport system, rather than just thinking of cars as sort of an artifact or thinking about modes of transport, sort of the system that locks particular ways of moving in place. And the dominant system he called automobility, which is the car-based transport system that you know in the US, that we know in the UK, um, that many other countries and cities are following. And this piece of work spoke about the car as sort of the quintessential manufactured object. He talked about the values and the norms and the priorities that kind of became part of that car. You know, the idea that we personify our cars, that we give them names, and there's not very many objects that we own that we name. (laughs) And what that means for how we have taken the car to be so central a part of our lives that when we start talking about not having private vehicles, it becomes quite affronting. It becomes quite scary. But he also talks about the other parts of the system. So things like the infrastructure, cars need roads, they need roundabouts. Why is it that we dedicate so much of city space to roads rather than pavements? Parking and people that fix our cars or that the different parts of the system that all kind of come together and lock it in place and say that, okay, we need a car-based transport system. And then it's quite hard to fight against it across all of those different levels. And so that's the system of automobility that we use as a sort of a basis for talking about how our current car system exists. Okay. But then... Just to make that super clear, automobility refers to an automobile-based sort of mobility, not to Mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles. Yep. So automobility is about private car-based transport systems rather than autonomous transport systems, which is some people have started using the phrase autonomobility or something like that, but I think it's quite complicated and it ends up just confusing everything. So automobility... I've heard at least six different acronyms to try to describe different ways people want to describe autonomous vehicles. Oh gosh, yeah. (laughs) Driverless, self-driving, robotic, connected and autonomous... Yeah, 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 exactly. All that stuff, yeah. Okay. So what makes a mobility system sustainable then? So there's another concept called the sustainable mobility paradigm, which David Bannister, he's an emeritus professor at Oxford, and then he wrote this paper on the sustainable mobility paradigm, and he talked about the importance of thinking about reducing the need to travel. And he's not sort of the only person that's done this. There's lots of other people that have talked about these different aspects as well. So reducing the need to travel, how we think about land use policies, how we design our cities so that people do or do not need to travel particular distances, efficiencies, making our vehicles more efficient and 
that would include things like electric powered, but also the efficiency gains around internal combustion engines and governance and policies that really enable shifts to different transport modes. So that might be allowing for bike lanes, those types of things. And so in his paper, in his work around the sustainable mobility paradigm, I think that he's done a very nice job of pointing to the importance of things like urban design, the material parts of sustainable mobility, but also the immaterial parts. So how we think about and talk about sustainable mobility because they're all going to be very different in different places. And I think that comes back, this is sort of my linking back to your question, is that what makes the best solution sustainable? There are things that we can talk about that are good solutions, but they're not necessarily the best solutions everywhere. So things that work very well in some places will not work so well in other places. And so when we see people trying to replicate Copenhagen, say, for their cycling system, and they try and sort of reproduce that elsewhere without taking in the context of that place, then quite often we'll see failure. We'll Mm. see things that don't work. Mm. And we can end up investing an awful lot in just moving ideas from city to city and not really thinking about what is needed, how things need to come together in particular ways. So if you're going to have a congestion charge, prior to introducing a congestion charge, there needs to be alternatives. So you need to be investing in the public transport system. You need to be providing other opportunities. And so there are definitely things that we need to be thinking about around how our cities are designed, about our housing market. And I know in many US cities, there's the same issues that we have here in Oxford, where normal people can't afford to buy houses in the city. So all that means is that people live outside of the city and then drive because there's no other way of accessing the city. So you end up forcing people to drive by car that might want to travel in another way. But also then thinking about those values so the fact that we name our cars what does that mean and how do we work through that as a social issue how do we think about the car being a status symbol and that's something that we're seeing being replicated in many cities around the world now so there's a range of things that are very useful that we do need to be thinking about like the types of fuels about the efficiencies about different options like I said the electric two wheels in China acknowledging those place-specific approaches, how people travel, why they travel that way. So in New Zealand, where I've done a lot of my work, electric vehicles are a very obvious option because they have something like 82% renewable electricity. Um, So electric vehicles have a really good opportunity there. However, they also have a domestic car market that relies on second-hand vehicles and people purchase vehicles and use them until they die until the vehicle just ceases to work so they don't tend to get rid of vehicles and purchase another one they certainly don't buy brand new vehicles very often so there's a real issue about needing to perhaps retrofit existing vehicles with electric propulsion or powertrains so there's a real issue about how you understand how people purchase what they do how they travel and how that links to the most sustainable options for that context yeah, again, you scratch the surface of mobility and instantly find yourself in a world of urban planning and cultural mm. values, you know, it's so, yeah. so interesting. Yeah, and it ends up becoming, because you want to say, okay, so what are the best, most sustainable solutions? And in many ways, I want to be able to say, well, it's this, that, and the other, give three options and run with it, because that's an easier story. It's an 
easier solution. Right. And often when I'm teaching about transport, I stand and I say, you know, I'm very embarrassed being somebody that studies climate change and transport because transport is failing. We're failing really badly. We're not holding up our weight when it comes to responding to climate change. Mm. And, you know, all of our emissions for transport are increasing when other sectors are at least stable, if not decreasing. And one of the issues is this, that it's tied to everything else. Right. And so it's really hard to say, okay, we can just replace this with this, because what we're talking about is a much broader system-wide change that isn't just transport, but it's everything else as well. Yeah, exactly. And just as a point in fact, after many years of working on decarbonizing the power sector in the US, mm-hmm. the emissions from the power sector have now fallen below the transport sector. So the transport sector yeah. is now the largest sector of emissions production in the U.S., and I think we're probably seeing that elsewhere as well. Yeah, it's the same in the U.K. Okay, so has anyone formalized, like, what makes transportation sustainable? Did Bannister, like, lay out any specific criteria or principles, or are we able to go down a list of criteria and tick them off and say, well, it has this, it has this, it has this, therefore it's sustainable? Yeah, so it would be that broad definition of sustainability. So it would go beyond environmental sustainability. And that's the work around transport justice, mobility justice that's going on at the moment, Mm. is really trying to foreground that, that responses to climate change, responses to air pollution, must include an equity and justice component to them. Because otherwise we're really not talking about sustainable mobility. We're talking about environmentally sustainable mobility. But the work that David Bannister's done has really been making the point that it's not just about the environment. It's not just about decarbonising, but it's about thinking who's not being served by our current transport system. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about that because equal access to new mobility solutions is clearly a key concern of yours. It comes out from the research Mm -hmm. and you're pointing to the fact that we'll need to work at it to ensure greater openness and democracy and participation from marginalized groups as Mm -hmm. we proceed into uh, kind of a new mobility sort of a paradigm, especially Mm -hmm. automated vehicles. And that's all fine and fair, but let me just play devil's advocate a bit on that. Why is that important? Isn't it enough for climate purposes to replace place as many ICE vehicles with electric vehicles as we can, no matter who's using them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a very long time, probably I would have said, yes, the most important thing here is decarbonizing transport. And if we can decarbonize transport, we'll worry about everything else later. And since my PhD, probably my biggest learning has been that that's just not the case, Um, that climate change is so deeply connected to everything else, to all of these other issues, particularly equity and justice, particularly thinking about not just in terms of responding to them in terms of mitigating climate change impacts, but also literally the biophysical impacts are felt more acutely by low-income communities, by low-income countries. So it really needs to be front and centre of that, that the low-carbon transition or decarbonising of the transport system and all of the other systems really needs to be paying attention to who is being disproportionately affected by both the policies and the practices and the technologies that are being put in place to respond to climate change, but also the impacts, the climate, the biophysical impacts that are recurring. And so we've seen examples of this in extreme weather events when transport is a really central part of it. So the ability to evacuate 
the ability to leave a city at the time of crisis tends to require social networks, it tends to require income, money, it tends to require a vehicle. And if you don't have those things, you're quite often not able to evacuate. So we know that transport is really part of climate change in all dimensions. Mm. So thinking about how we reduce the carbon intensity of the system, but also how transport is connected to people being adversely affected and the increasing likelihood of those kinds of extreme events in the future. And so the ideas around openness, democracy and participation links to this. It links to broadening the suite of voices that are allowed to be part of the conversation thinking in cities that it's not the same people making decisions. In transport, we have a very gendered expert body where for a long time it's been a very sort of masculine area of study, area of investigation. So we have some issues there, but we also have much broader axes of difference that aren't included as part of the conversation. But also from an innovation point of view, That is really important. And so that's actually how we were thinking about it in some of our work was that whilst, yes, it's incredibly important that all of these voices are part of conversations about the sorts of futures we want, the sorts of cities we want, actually from an innovation point of view, if you want your innovations to be successful, there's a whole body of literature that says that openness, democracy and participation must be part of that process. If you're going to avoid things like public unrest or rejection of a technology or rejection of a particular practice. So what we're saying is that, particularly with autonomous vehicles, so autonomous vehicles present something that is quite challenging for many people. It's quite different from what we currently have. The relationship between human and technology is being blurred and complicated in particular ways. And if you want to take people on that journey with you, you need to be open. There needs to be space for people to engage with the technology, to know more about the technology, and it can't just be mediated by media. Um, There needs to be more. And so with autonomous vehicles, we're seeing a time where there are more and more public experiments with autonomous vehicles, but they're still not connecting with various publics in very explicit ways. So they're still quite guarded. They're still limited to particular parts of cities. Only invited people tend to get to go and see them. And so the problem with that could be that once the technology is launched and made available, that people say, actually, we don't want this. And so any benefits that might have been achieved by way of this innovation are lost anyway. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Several recent reports last month pointed to massive stranded asset risks for those invested in fossil fuel assets, as well as the financial damage that climate change could do to various sectors and companies, so I thought I'd make a little collection of them in the news of this episode. Item 1. The executive director of International Bank Supervision at the Bank of England warned that the risks of climate change are very real while speaking at the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum in London in mid-April, even as thousands of climate protesters demanded action on climate as part of a protest organized by the climate group Extinction Rebellion. The carbon release today is creating the physical and transition risks of tomorrow, she said. Climate change, therefore, represents the tragedy of the horizon. By the time it is clear that climate change is creating risks that we want to reduce, it may already be too late to act. She warned of a sudden market crash, quote, a climate Minsky moment, where asset prices adjust quickly with negative feedback loops to growth. Both physical risks from damage and transition risks from policy, technology, and markets could lead to between $4 trillion and $20 trillion in asset value losses, she said. And the Bank of England has set out how the banks and insurance companies it regulates should incorporate climate change in their governance, risk management, forward planning, and disclosure policies. Item 2. The largest money manager in the UK, Legal and General Investment Management, which manages £1 trillion worth of UK pension fund investments, said that businesses must address climate change now or face shareholder backlash, noting that it had voted against nearly four... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.